Bandwidth for Communication Lab is provided by Emphasis, world leaders in business writing training. For free resources and course information, go to www.writing-skills.com. Welcome to Communication Lab. My name's Andy White. I'm joined as always by Rob Ashton, CEO at Emphasis. Hello. Our guest today dropped out of college at the age of 19, a sometimes secretive figure. He has been behind major publicity coups, including orchestrating a fake smear campaign for one of his own clients, the controversial American author Tucker Max. With no budget and in under two weeks, he managed to get coverage in everything from the Chicago Tribune to the Washington Post all of which is covered in his soon-to-be-released book, Trust Me, I'm Lying, Confessions of a Media Manipulator. Not satisfied with that, he's also the global marketing director of American Apparel, whose founder and CEO described him as someone who has done more for my business than just about anyone. And all of this for someone who has only just celebrated his 25th birthday. He is Ryan Holiday. Ryan Holiday, you've been manipulating the media for quite a while. Why have you decided to go public now? Yeah, um, so for me, the the things that I talk about in this book are the things that everyone in the industry knows about and can't not talk about. But as soon as it comes to disclosing these things to the public, they close ranks and 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 get quiet. And as someone who's sort of very much an insider in this system, but not dependent on it. I felt like it was time to take that open secret and let everyone know. I, I wanted people to know what was going on behind the curtain because what goes on behind the curtain is, is what determines, you know, sort of what happens on stage. And I wanted, for, for me, this was, this was ultimately about um, exposing something that I felt was very dangerous and very influential but as far as the public was concerned, com- completely hidden and obscured. And, and I'm not someone who likes open secrets, and, and that's what I set out to do with the book. Okay, let's have a listen to the trailer. Yeah. The internet is full of liars, cheats, and charlatans who want only one thing. Your attention. Page views and publicity control what you think you know. From stories on the internet to the news on TV. The system is completely defenseless. Manipulators like me spread lies and generate fake outrage daily. If you were interested in media manipulation, here's one way. Start small. Send your story to a tiny personal blog from an alias email. They get an exclusive, you get an outlet. You then take that exclusive link and send another fake email to an even larger site. Like links in a chain, you move your story along to larger and more influential sites. Your original idea builds momentum with each link until finally, your story becomes the story. This is one way unreal news becomes reality. This information is dangerous. It's up to you how you use it. My name is Ryan Holiday. Trust me, I'm lying. Well, it's explosive stuff, isn't it? Does it actually really work that way? Yeah, it works exactly like that um, every day, but both done by people like me and uh, by me. And then the system can do that to itself, which is, which is really interesting, too. Um, 
the big discovery I had that is it's not just that there's media manipulators out there sort of controlling and influencing what you read because to some degree that's always happened right like there's always been publicists there's always been propagandists there's always been pranksters who are trying to influence the media but what I think is new or or very particular to blogs is that now blogs since they're paid by the page view since they're trying to make a name for themselves they're trying to get attention Blogs are the ones who are manipulating this chain. If you think about it, that first blog that I talk about, the, the really small one, they benefit when the bigger site links to them and then when a, a bigger site links to both of them and then you know a final site links to all, all three. Um, and so blogs are out there trying to promote and get attention for themselves just as hard, if not harder than promoters and propagandists are. And that's what's really scary is that for the first time, journalists are no longer sort of uh, gatekeepers for the truth. They're not sitting in between the, the public and corporations trying to sort of get each other's messages to, to the two groups. They're out there as this sort of third interested party, interested in getting as much attention and traffic and money as they can. And, and, and that money grab is very exploitable. And that's, that's what I discovered. Mm. So, so the the bloggers really are, are complicit in this this kind of conspiracy. Would Would you agree with that, Ryan? Yeah, I think it's it's sort of a sort of a tacit conspiracy. Like, I don't think anyone's out there saying like, "Look, we're going to deceive people." But the incentives are such that uh, no one is incentivized to do good work. No one is incentivized to get to the truth. No one's incentivized to protect the readers. To to service their interests. Instead, bloggers know like, look, if we do this headline, it will get more clicks than this, let's say, more honest headline. So which one are they going to go with when they're paid by the clicks? They're not paid by, did we write the best article that we can? They're paid by, can we get the most clicks that we can? And that very real shift in incentive has implications that ripple through the entire system. I mean, you give a you give some very concrete examples of this, don't you? Um, mentioning um, hidden pages on on Gawker dot com, which which you say has has um, you know they, they actually have a screen in the in the middle of the uh, middle of the office, which says which postings are the most popular. Um, we we checked this out um, Gawker dot com slash stats uh, just before we we started recording, and and they're there. You you have it. It is like a popularity contest, isn't it? Not just the actual blog, but the individual bloggers that you for all to see is listed uh, which which posts are the most popular, and you, you know it is a le- it's kind of an internal league table. Yeah, it, what's interesting about it is I, I don't even know if that's hidden. I think they're very open about it. Like you walk into the Gawker office, that's the first thing that you see, and anyone can access those stats. And um, look, we're, we're all human beings. So when you, when you give people a metric, people are going to compete to, to do that metric the best, to, to have that be the highest number possible, especially when they are paid the higher that number gets. So I use the metaphor of, in, in Vietnam, right, the, uh, it was very difficult to judge success or failure, right, because you're, not, you're fighting over a very small amount of territory. So it's not like who controls the most land is the winner. So the U.S. government made the decision very early on that they were going to judge success or failure based on body count, just how many people were killed on either side. And that's how they were going to determine victory, which was a very simple, straightforward metric. But as you can imagine – 
it leads to all sorts of horrible problems, right? It's easy to, uh, to fabricate the numbers. People are just killing for the sake of killing, whatever. I, I very much see the page you metric in blogging as the same way because think about it. A, 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 blog, a blog post that does 100,000 page views, that doesn't say anything about the quality of that article because what if everyone clicked it and then hated it? You can't mm. undo clicks. You can't uncount clicks. And so um, that number has basically become the main currency for pretty much everything on the web. So like when you, when you go to leave a comment on a blog, you're giving them more page views. So uh, a very simple other way of looking at that is that now blogs are incentivized to make you comment. And what's the easiest way to make someone comment? Well, the better the article is, the less of a need there is to comment. So I saw very clearly that blogs are now incentivized to be incomplete so as to drive people to comment and, and all sorts of really weird, subtle incentives that make bloggers do pretty much everything but write great work. I was going to say to you that, you know, put it to you that you take a, a pretty dim view of bloggers. Um, but I, I think it, it strikes me that you're saying it's the system that's at fault. Just quoting from the book here, you, you just point out that bloggers are under incredible pressure to produce. Um, that leaves little time for research or verification, let alone speaking to anybody, speaking to your sources. But you say that sometimes the stories these people are chasing are so crazy that they don't want to risk doing any research because if they do that, the whole facade collapses. Yeah, I think a good way to describe it is is they're incentivized to dis, to suspend disbelief because, like, let's say you were really skeptical or suspicious. Now you're going to see something that might be controversial or crazy and go, you know what, I'm going to wait this out. I don't think it's a good story. So the person who does that doesn't get a story. The person who dives headfirst and just says, oh, yeah, that must be true. I'm going to write about it. They get a story. And since there's no real disincentive for not doing uh, bad work, they win. And uh, that, that, again, that causes a lot of problems too. And in the book, I try not to blame individuals. I try to look at the people who created the system and created the incentives. So if you're a blogger and your boss gives you a very clear mandate on what kind of content you're supposed to produce and what kind of content he's going to compensate you for, I don't blame that individual. I mean, I think that they're complicit in, a, in the system just by participating in it, but I don't see them as some sort of, of like evil person. Just like, you know, you're watching cable news and, and the pundits are sort of being very superficial and glib. I don't blame them because they're just trying to sort of make a living. I, I think you got to look higher and look at the person who who sort of who owns the station. You got to look at Rupert Murdoch, not the the talking head on a single television show. In the book, Ryan, you give examples of manipulation that started with minor blogs and then went all the way up to sort of ending the career of a, of a U.S. congressman. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah. Um, so. I, so I, I don't work in politics. That's not really what I handle. I, I usually work for authors, for brands, for some minor celebrities, things like that. But what I noticed is like, you know, I, w I would leak something to, let's say, Gawker, who we were talking about, and they, they might run a funny item about American Apparel, one of the companies that I work for. 
And, and that's all well and good because it's just a t-shirt company. It, it kind of doesn't matter if they get the story wrong. It's not like an issue of national security or something. But then when the next day they publish a scandal about a congressman and that congressman resigns, suddenly it kind of takes on some more significance in my view. And, and what happened as these blogs became more and more influential uh, and, and started writing about broader and broader subjects is that their writing started to have implications for parts of culture that maybe they never intended. And they never changed their practices around that response, that new influencer responsibility. So now that like originally when blogs were just sort of this thing that happened on the Internet, it didn't really matter. But now blogs control and drive the news cycle. It's where reporters go to get their news that they then give to the public. So when Gawker writes something about politics that then actually impacts politics, it matters. And it's, it's really scary once you've seen behind the curtain and you realize that despite this influence, they, don't, they, they, they haven't changed their standards in response. You talk about um, journalists as well, um, almost reverse engineering the news. You, you talk about Haro, help a reporter out, um, where reporters will ask for specific examples that illustrate a story that they're about to write before they've written it. Yeah, and it, it happens it, it happens even long before they get to that point. Most big media outlets at this point uh, employ either a single or teams of data analysts, and those analysts look at the topics that get the site the most traffic, and they say, write more about this thing. And so the news isn't you know, what's important, what the reporters think people should go or should, should read about, but it's instead what, what will get traffic for the site, what topics are trending on Twitter, what topics are trending on Google News. And so um, they're not following the story where it goes. They're sort of leading the story based on what's best for them. And that that ripples through the whole chain. So now it's like, okay, if I want to do a story about this thing, now I've got to find news that, that tells me that. So they'll go on a site like Help a Reporter Out and they'll say, you know, I'm trying to do a story about how the future of businesses is app development. Who wants to help me write this story? And tons mm. of self-interested people are willing to raise their hand and say, hey, I'll help you manufacture the news because that benefits me. And, and everyone is... Since everyone benefits from doing it, no one stops and says, hey, is this real? Is this really what our job is? Because the mandate they have from their boss is to write about topics that will get traffic. And they end up sort of creating the news in order to get that traffic. So it's almost like commissioning stories according to search engine rankings then, really? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, They know the terms that do best. And that's what they write about rather than what they think, you know, users should know about or what they're passionate about or what they care about. There's a reason that the Huffington Post stopped writing about only politics because they realized there was all these other terms that they were getting traffic for. And they said, oh, well, that'll be easy to get traffic about. And there's a reason that uh, like they love things about like all sites love things about celebrities. They love things about, you know, names that are that are that are big at that moment because uh you know google and twitter and facebook send the majority of traffic to these sites so whatever will get people to click on 
on on those platforms is what they want to have in their headlines and in the bodies of their articles. Leaving aside the issue of whether this is right, um, I mean, what what's the difference between the news blogs, say, and the tabloid press? I mean, surely they're both there to to attract readers and to um, to to sell, be it sell advertising or sell newspapers or both. Well, I, w- I would say that today there is no difference between how blogs work and how tabloids work. But the, the, the difference that matters is that people think that there is a difference. The general public reads a tabloid as this sort of jokey, uh, fun diversion. And then they turn around and read blogs thinking that it's the same as the news, that it's the same as reading the New York Times. And it's fundamentally not that. And the news seeing that blogs are getting all this traffic writing this way sort of emulate what they're doing and and the two drive each other so the 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 tabloid model of saying anything that will make you pick up a copy of it at the supermarket is very much how blogs work but that is not known or or internalized by the public yet and that's what i set out to do with this book i want to make it very clear that like Look, the incentives of blogging and, and the, the, the market for the news that they create is pretty much exactly the same as that of the yellow press like 100 years ago. And it's, it's about time that we came out and admitted it instead of pretending that it's this wonderful uh, you know, world of citizen engagement and, and uh, democratic news and, and, and technological wonder. No, it's, it's a dangerous cesspool of, uh, of misinformation. You, you paint a, that's an understatement, you paint a pretty grim picture of the whole situation. And you, you go further than that. In the book, you say that the most, pre, most powerful predictor of virality, you know, how to, how to make a story go viral, yeah. is how much anger an article evokes. Uh, and in fact, I think you're quoting from quite solid research there, aren't you? Not yeah, your, that's not, not your some, own. That's not something like I made up. There, there's, there was an extensive study done of, and this wasn't even of blogs. It was an extensive study done of of articles that make the most popular list for New York Times Magazine. So, like a, a reputable publication, I think it was the Wharton School of Business that studied seven thousand articles that made made the most popular list on for New York Times Magazine. Indeed, and what they noticed is that valence, so the the degree with which people feel emotion when they're reading an article is what predicts how viral it will be. And the most, uh, the highest valence emotion, the, the number one predictor of whether an article would go viral or make the list was ultimately anger. How angry did that article make someone? If you think about it, it makes sense, right? Like, if you, if you read an article and, you, and your reaction is, oh, good article, you might send it to a friend, or you might mention it in conversation. But if you read an article and your reaction is, this is the most upsetting thing that I've ever read, you're going to send that to a lot of people. You're going to talk about it. Mm. And that anger could come from a variety of things in the article. It could come from the fact that you disagree with the article. It could come from the fact that the article scares you or like the people in the article make you angry. It doesn't really matter. What matters is that it provokes this reaction. People are gravitating towards extremes because extremes get traffic and traffic is where the money comes from. You, you describe them, you, you go so far as to describe the media as being in an 
evil position. Uh, the evil position of needing to go negative and play tricks with your psyche in order to drive you to to share the material online. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it's not an enviable position, but it's certainly the position that they're in, which is they know that sort of twisting your emotions is good for them. So they kind of have to do that. I mean, the person who doesn't play this game is the one who finishes last in the fight for traffic and thus makes the, the, the least amount of money. And as everyone, as everyone else is doing it, it's sort of this race to the bottom where your article has to be that much more extreme than the other guys just to, just to fight through the noise. And when emotions like anger uh, do better than emotions like happiness, that's, that's, a bad position to be in because you have to write negative news uh, to pay the bills. And it's just, it's not just negativity. It's, it's all sorts of emotions that are extreme that they end up, you know, leveraging. And then a lot of the good emotions aren't viral. So they don't try to hit those. Mm-hmm. Like, um, like I talk about the city of Detroit in the book a little bit, um, sadness, like things that just make us sad, uh, don't, don't spread very well because like as uh, Jonah Peretti, who, who founded Buzzfeed says, no one wants to pass along a bummer to one of their friends. So basically all charity is about making us sad, right? All, all like, oh man, that's bad. I wish it wasn't that way. Well, that means that, you know, pictures of starving African children, uh, don't stand a chance against photos of cute puppies. And so online you see a lot more cute puppies than you do uh, starving African children. Now you've, um, you've, this is not just academic, is it? You've used the, this to your advantage extensively. Yeah. Um, so, so the way I, I look at it, my job is to get attention for my clients and, and I justify this to myself and, and, with, with the explanation that I only work for clients whose work that I believe in and who people who I think deserve attention. Um, and like, look, that's my private rationalization. You can buy it or you don't. Um, but the only way to get attention in this very vicious fight for it is to know these rules and to exploit them, to know that, okay, if you're trying to get attention for your charity, that helps starving African children, you know, just photos that make people sad are not going to work. They're not going to work the same way that they would in other mediums. And so my job is to find the angle to communicate a client's message that will fly online. How do I get attention over a million blogs fighting for that same sliver of attention at the same time? No, it's not just... um charities for starving children in Africa that you've helped though is it I mean you, you felt right. that you've used these techniques for promoting the work of uh, uh, of the controversial author Tucker Max too yeah I mean I work for you know number one New York Times best-selling authors billion dollar brands um, companies corporations public figures um, my, my you know my job is to get their message out there because the idea of just doing good stuff, just writing a good book, is not enough anymore. You've got to, you've got to go out into this world and fight for a piece of it. And usually that means 
coming to bloggers where they are. It means finding the knowing that they can only communicate to the public in a certain way, that they have very clear incentives, and making sure that my client's work meets that criteria and gives them a platform. So I think about it like if bloggers are after page views, I have to make it clear that writing about my client has page views in it for them. So it, with I'd like to ask you about, about that example with Tucker Max because it's such a – powerful story of how the media can be manipulated uh, thanks to this reliance this this alleged reliance on on blogs um can you tell us a, you you start the book with that example can you can you tell us a little bit about that yeah so we were in a place where so so tucker wrote a number one new york times selling book uh, best-selling book called i hope they serve beer in hell and it was turned into a movie but it was an independently produced movie so we had a very small advertising budget so we thought okay, how can we get people to talk about this movie uh, in an untraditional way? And what we decided we had to do is we had to go negative. We had to make this be the controversial movie that everyone was talking about rather than what we obviously would have liked, which was have it be, you know, the movie that everyone loves because that one message is cheap to produce and the other is expensive. And so what we decided to do is we would create this sort of national protest uh, against this movie. And, and we started very small. We started with a couple blogs uh, and uh, the websites of college newspapers in, in places where the movie was, was doing screenings. And we sort of handpicked out things and examples in the movie that people could protest. And we went to these, pro- we went to these you know, college uh, advocacy groups and we said we pretended to be on their side we said hey i just heard about this movie i'm very offended will you help me protest and we uh you know we bought billboards for the movie that then we we defaced ourselves we pretended to be um political protesters protesting this movie we um we we deliberately made controversial ads that we knew would set people off in the right communities and the reason we were doing that is we were trying to create this – we were trying to artificially create this, this underground movement of, of a reaction against the, of the movie, but only in the right places, only in places that would – the larger media would see it and react to it. So um, like for instance, I, I, I bought ads, then I defaced them, then I took pictures of those ads and I sent them to influential blogs in my area – pretending to be someone who just saw this. And then when they wrote about it, other people saw it and said, oh, that's a good idea. I totally agree. I'm going to do that. And so the fake stuff that we did, the fake protests that we orchestrated became real protests. The mm-hmm. vandalization that I did uh, uh, inspired real vandalism. And then those blog editorials became real editorials. And the next thing we knew, the Chicago Tribune and the Washington Post are parroting claims that they saw in, you know, a tiny college newspaper because they wanted to popularize what they felt was a was a burgeoning movement. How do the bloggers feel when when they discover you've played them like this? Well, the book is is where I reveal all this. None of them none of them have known to this point. I mean, it's been three or four years now, and as far as everyone was always concerned, it was that controversial movie that everyone was talking about that uh that almost got banned from theaters, you know? And the reason I wrote this book was I saw something that I knew to be fake 
that I thought, you know, would eventually get found out, I, I saw that that never happened. And I, I said, okay, I think it's time to, to come out from behind the curtain and, and say like, look, this whole thing has been a charade. This is not real. This is exactly how it went down. And I know that because I'm the one who did it. And I hope that in exposing this, um, it makes the system less vulnerable to that happening in the future. Yes, because I was going to ask Ryan that now that you've uh, you've given away all your secrets, is this going to end your career? Uh, you know, I'm not. It's not that I'm ready to give up the game, but I'm tired of the game and I'm ready for it to change. So I feel like it's gone on this way long enough, and mm. the consequences are great enough that any loss that I have, uh, you know, is far outweighed by the by the gains of having a system that's no longer so easy to fool and trick and use to your own ends. Because what I saw is like, look, I'm again, I'm doing this to sell a, one of my best friend's movies. My conscience, is, my conscience is clear. But what about people doing this to sell political candidates, to sell uh, crappy products, to mm. sell untrue facts, to sell, you know, divisive politics all that sort of stuff and 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 i think we're we're worse off for that being possible i i almost uh, i almost hesitate to to ask this because uh, it's an understatement to say that these are controversial techniques but if any of our listeners did want to write so that things do get shared picked up by the blogs can you give them a, a, a couple of tips on how to do that? I, I say that with some trepidation, actually, because I'm not sure what the answer is going to be. But, yeah, but well, seriously, you know, uh, I mean, how should they write headlines, for example? Well, in the in the book, I laid it I laid it out in nine very clear tactics. But like I, what you said is is an interesting way of put it. How do you, how do you write it? How do you write it so uh, you know your, your story gets turned into a headline? That's actually a very new way of thinking about it that I talk about in the book that most people don't do. Most people think like, okay, how do I do something that's cool? How do I do something that like bloggers will think is, is, is interesting or is good. And that's not how you think about it because that's not how they're thinking about it. They're, when they look at a story, the first thing they're thinking about is, you know, does this create a click friendly headline? And when you're, writing your press release or you're writing your pitch, if you're not, if you're not putting yourself in their shoes and realizing that the most important, uh, you know, that, that the eye of the needle that they have to thread this through is a headline, then you're really doing yourself a disservice. If your, if your pitch can't be turned into a headline, then you're kind of asking them to do a favor and blogs don't do favors. So the big thing is obviously always appeal to self-interest and a lot of people self-interest is not what motivates the offline media that's not self-interest is not how you get in the new york times because the new york times sees itself as this sort of gatekeeper of of culture so for them you you appeal to different triggers but online when what they're trying to do is is further their own interests you've got to make it clear that writing about you does that but, um, I mean, how yeah. extreme does this have to be? I mean, you, you know, g- given the the examples uh, you have, uh, little girl slaps mom with piece of pizza saves life. You know, I mean, do we have to sink to that kind of level in order to in order to get publicity? 
Yeah, I mean, look, you're, that's what you're. That's the competition, right? What I like to say online is, look, porn is always one click away. Whatever people are doing online, that's that's the sort of looming threat. Is that porn may be more interesting? So that's what you're competing against. And if your thing isn't more interesting than porn, you're kind of screwed. So, so that's so. Just make it more interesting than porn. Okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> If your thing isn't more interesting than all these other things out there, why would someone write about you? Unless unless they're doing it for, you know, for charity, they're not going to. This book's a great read. I mean, it's it's I, I couldn't put it down. It was it's a real sort of page turner, and I I think it's got bestseller written all over it. One thing that struck me though, Ryan, is that the person yeah. we're speaking to now seems to be quite different to the sort of jaded and sort of frankly cynical author of the book, which is the real Ryan Holiday. Uh, look, what I was trying to say earlier is that, like, I decided that my friends and clients work was worth publicizing. And in order to do that, I had to go into a world and internalize its rules and look at them very amorally and just take them for what they are. I never agreed with them. I never thought they were good. Obviously, I would much rather exist in a media world where quality was the metric that mattered. Um, so I, I guess if, if, if anything comes off about me in the book, I, I think it should be like realism and pragmatism. That's, that, those are the sort of the, the, the two mantras I, I go by when I'm doing publicity. But I'm also, there's also another part of me that's able to say like, while this is the case, it's not how I want it to be. And this, the book is very much a criticism about how things are. And I just felt like I was in a unique position to express that to people. And um, I, I would say this is the real me, the person who's, who's critical of the world and is trying to communicate and change it. However, uh, you, know, you, you also have to make a living. And it doesn't matter how much you disagree with the system that doesn't change the fact that it's the dominant system. So I, I guess I have a, a talent for being able to subsume my own uh, my own emotions about something and and just go out there and compete when I when I have to. You're in New York uh, now for the launch party later this yeah. week for your book. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, have you invited many bloggers? Are they on the guest list? <laughs> yeah, of course. That's that's the funny thing is that again, this is all very like. Almost every blogger that I've shown this book to has said, wow, you got it exactly right. This is totally how it works. Or they said, you're not harsh enough. It's even worse than you say. And so I think to some degree, instead of being angry, they're like a little bit like relieved that this burden is finally being taken off them, that it's not like in secret anymore. And the other thing is a, a big portion of them just don't care. I mean, they're out to get theirs and they'll do whatever it takes to do it. And the fact that other people are tricking or burning them, why would they care? It's not like it, it hurts their business. So yeah, there'll be a ton of bloggers out there. And, and I'm, I'm friends or business associates with almost everyone I criticize in the book. I, I'm not like, I'm not just sitting here from the outside observing what goes on. I've, I've worked with these people. I've paid them tens of thousands of dollars. I've, I've given them stories. We've, we've worked collaboratively on stuff. And that's why I felt like I had an obligation to finally expose all this because I was one of the few people in a position to do so. 
Well, Trust Me I'm Lying, Confessions of a Media Manipulator, is published by Penguin on the 19th of July. Ryan Holiday, thank you very much indeed. Thank you guys for having me. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Communication Lab was brought to you by Emphasis Business Writing Trainers. Sign up for free training at www.writing-skills.com. Thank you.